Welcome back to Schaefer's Market Mashup. We are in the midst of a big week for markets. Uh, Fed meeting is underway today, Tuesday, July 27th. Uh, we've got GDP data on Friday. I think some more inflation PCE numbers are coming out. We're in the thick of earnings season. So amidst all of that, I figured it's time to bring out the big guns. So please welcome Mark Petrino, uh, CMT and lead educator at Benzinga.com and the first Connecticut resident to be joining me on the podcast. Thrilled for that. Mark, how's it going? It's going well, thank you. How are you? I'm pretty good, pretty good. So if you've ever Googled stock market investing, Benzinga has come up. I mean, you guys are you know at the forefront of everything and Schaefer's and Benzinga have had some great team-ups in the past. Um, a lot of our traders and former podcasts uh, have appeared on boot camps and other presentations. I'm sure you're the mastermind behind all of that. Your new program quoted as to teach and empower students to learn how to profit from the recognition of important levels and trends in the markets. We love to hear that. That's that's a type of expectational analysis that really aligns over here at Schaefer's. To dive in, I want to talk about kind of your background. You started out on the trading side. You're still a CMT, but in your your new and current role, as of April 2021, I believe, you moved over to lead educator. So what prompted the change into this more education and writing standpoint? Well, I'll just give you a little bit about my background. Um, I was in the institutional trading world for about 20 years, where I got brought in by a very well-known money manager, one of the one of the all-time greats, a guy by the name of Mario Gabelli, who I'm sure a lot of people listening now know. So I got to spend a couple of years there learning the, the rope, so to speak. And then I made a move over to trade for Steve Cohen uh, at SAC Capital. Steve is now well known for owning the Mets and the show Billions allegedly is about him. So I had a really good start. I mean, I was, I was able to work for two of the, you know, the most well-known money managers and, and two of the greatest money managers uh, pretty much in the history of the industry. And then I spent I spent three five year stints at three different institutional money managers where I was the head of trading. So these institutional money managers, we had hedge funds, we were managing all kinds of different strategies and styles. So it was my job to oversee that. So last place I was at, just to make a long story short, it got it got bought out by a couple of people who didn't know what they were doing. And the performance fell apart and the assets fled out the door. And I decided to, you know, like I, I, I was contemplating kind of retiring or didn't really know what I was going to do. Um, but I always kind of felt this like compelling, con, this compelling feeling to like teach people. I've always enjoyed teaching people. As a matter of fact, my grandmother, God rest her soul, always told me I should have been a teacher. So I'll never forget it. One day, I'm like just surfing around the net, like looking at different things in the market. And I see this ad like, you know, the stock I recommended last week doubled. So of course, I'm a trader. You know, I got to look at it, see what it says. And it was just a complete fallacy. It was, it, was, it was erroneous, okay? Every stock has a bid and an offer. And the bid is the price you sell at. And the offer is the price you buy at. This particular person was touting a... a, a a one cent stock that they recommended where the bid was one cent and the offer was two cents. So if you sold a hundred shares, you'd get one cent. If you bought a hundred shares after that, you'd pay two cents. Technically the stock doubled, but you couldn't have made any money. 
So when I saw that, I started thinking, you know what, there's got to be a market for me to, to um, it's got to be a le much less stressful uh, in a much more fun way. And I also, I enjoy helping people. A lot of the students in the trading class have like, they're, they're just, it's like, it's kind of changed their worlds because there's so much mythology out there and there's so much bad research and bad chart stuff. Um, so a lot of the students are learning. It's, it's not as hard as it needs to be. There are no secret systems that these great traders have that always work. It's about understanding in the market which price levels are important. For example, if you if you have a chart in front of you, look at Apple right now. It's sitting right on top of an important support level at 151. If that starts to move lower, that's going to probably tell us that the broader market is going to move lower too. So we focus on what are the important price levels, what are the trends, what's the momentum that's driving the trends, and then risk management and investment psychology. And we've done very well so far, Pat. You touched on good faith advice and education. There, there, there are so many bad faith actors out there uh, that are snake oil salesmen, how, whatever word you want to use, promising this magic bullet. And it, it sounds so simple, but the most important thing an investor needs to know starting out is that there is no magic bullet, like you said. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you've been doing this now for over a year, going on, I think, 18 months. What are some of the biggest mistakes or misconceptions you see students and retail traders have when starting out? One is something we just covered, that mm -hmm. the, the great traders have these secret systems that are infallible. And that's just not the case. You would be surprised. I've known traders that lose money on more trades than they make money on, but they end up being very successful because they let their winners run, Right. So you have to understand that losing is part of this. You're never, you're, you're not going to find a system that always works. So you have to kind of accept the fact that you have a loss. I mean, think about this, right? If you play basketball, you, you don't get every shot in, you know, you're going to the greatest basketball players in the world miss some shots. Um, there's a lot of misconception too, about the ins and outs of what actually goes on on wall street. Like what is a hedge fund? I get a lot of questions about that. Like, you know, why are hedge funds so mysterious? And they're not. The only difference between, a, say, a hedge fund and a mutual fund is in the hedge fund, the money manager gets what we call a performance fee, which is part of the action, and they get a management fee. In, say, a mutual fund, all they get is the management fee. So that's why these hedge fund people are able to make so much money. I've traded for hedge funds that were as boring as an investment philosophy can be a hedge fund that holds maybe 15 stocks, deep value, maybe trades once or twice a quarter. I've also overseen the, the trading of hedge funds that were very sophisticated. For instance, uh, we had a 130-30, which is you take your portfolio and then you short 30% of it, and then you use that money to buy other stocks, and there's all kinds of leverage and so forth. So the, the real bottom line is the, a hedge fund is has a different pay structure or payment structure or fee structure, I should say, than your traditional institutional money management. There's a lot of questions about like, what's a dark pool? Now, a dark pool is just a private stock exchange. It's not good nor bad, it just is. And what's kind of ironic is about 20 years ago when they, the people that provide the dark pool started marketing them, this whole idea was it's dark, meaning no one's gonna see your trades. You can trade in our dark pool and it's secret. No one's gonna see what you're doing. And that's just a complete myth. Because anything that trades has to get reported to the tape. So now here we are 20 years later and people hear dark pool and it was supposed to be this like thing to help the market. And now it's become like, oh, oh, it's a dark pool. It's like got this like on, ominous 
you know, undertow to it or this, this ominous connotation to it. So I get questions about that. I get questions about like, you know, what are algorithms? How do algorithms work? Algorithms are, that's another term that's just wi widely used and misunderstood. An algorithm is merely a computerized program that a trader uses to execute trades. Just like a carpenter would use a hammer or a screwdriver, traders use algorithms. And just to put it in a, just a, more of a kind of an interesting context, very simple algorithm. Buy me 10% of the volume, whatever trades today. So if a million shares trades today, I'm, at the end of the day, I know I'm going to have 100,000 shares. So that's very, very basic, just buy X percent of the bond. You can get an algorithm that is a little more complex. You could say, all right, well, buy me 10% of the volume. But if the price falls 10%, step that up to buy 20% of the volume. Or conversely, you could go the other way if you think it's going to break out. Buy 10% of the volume. But if it goes up by 5%, start buying two, or you know, buy 20% of the volume. So algorithms are just computer programs that traders use. They're neither good nor bad. So I enjoy te teaching people about trading, but I also enjoy exposing some of the fallacies and misconceptions uh, people have had. And a lot of people have been pleasantly surprised to find out that things are very different than they actually thought. I mean, I spent two years as a market maker, and I can tell you with 100% honesty, I never went to work thinking like, Oh, gee, how can I go rip off the little guy today? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, that's another misnomer too. people while we're on it. People don't understand is this whole big guy versus little guy thing. As a head trader at a fund where we manage money for institutions, my my job is to make sure that our clients are all treated fairly, all the trades are executed fairly and so forth. Now, who are our clients? Who are the who do hedge funds manage money for most of the time? Right. Not oligarchs, not mm -hmm. people that are running them. There are pension plans, there are church endowments. The last place I was at in our biggest account, we had two clients. One was a pension plan and one was a teacher's retirement plan. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, let me say that again. One was a church endowment and one was a teacher's retirement plan. So it might be this hedge fund, but it's actually ultimately managing money for the little guy. And I think a lot of people on Wall Street really don't understand that. Mm -hmm. The connotation is is very important. I think the more people understand that, the more. And so you mentioned before talking about you know Apple as support at one fifty one. Are are people asking about support resistance? Are you introducing moving averages to them because that's foundational to our sort of expectational analysis? Yeah, we have. There's there, the school has eight classes. And it's not like you have eight classes and then it's over. You have eight classes and then we start again. So each class, what we do is we talk about a particular market principle or market fundamental. And we review it with some historical charts. We discuss what it is. But then we look at, to the, at the market in real time to see how we can apply that nice. to ultimately making money, right? For example, as long as there are financial markets, there are always going to be certain price levels that are more important than others. So in the fundamental part of the lesson or the first half an hour or so, we talk about why a level might have support or what is a support level or what is a resistance level. But then we go out and we look into the real market and see if we could find levels that are breaking and uh, or maybe trends that are breaking. So we take the we study the market fundamentals, but then we try to apply them in practical terms to the market. And we have a class on price levels, momentum. 
our moving averages, which you mentioned, we talk about that in our trends class. There's a class on trends. How do you know a trend is changing? Well, some people can look at a, at a break of a trend line, but that's a little bit subjective. Some people don't like subjective and they want to be objective, so they'll use a moving average crossover. They'll say, all right, well, if the 10-day moving cro average crosses below the 50-day, it tells us the, the trend higher is, is coming to an end. So we cover um, momentum, trends, investment psychology, which is, is a pretty cool class. That's the one we had today. We do um, a class on building trading models and investment strategies, and then a class is on just how to like kind of broadly analyze the market the different sectors that compose the S&P 500 and so forth. What is, uh, well, I'm going to botch this quote, but I'm going to give it a shot anyway. The Humphrey Neal about the trend is right in the middle and wrong on both ends or, or something like that. Uh, well, well, the, 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 what he's saying is that the Humphrey Neal wrote this famous book called uh, Contrary Thinking, which I oh, think yeah. is a great book. And yep, just read it last spring. And, and it's not just for trading. You can use it in other aspects of your life too. You know, it's like, you, you just try to like kind of think a little bit differently. But mm -hmm. what he was saying is that when we're in these big long-term uptrends or downtrends, everyone's right. But when it we get to the turn, most people don't recognize that the turn is happening. Mm -hmm. So they're so they're wrong at the end. So I think that's kind of what he's, he's alluding to. But um, yeah, we spend a lot of time talking about psychology because that's the reason why most people lose money like when, mm -hmm. when they come to the school i always ask them like what problems have you had and obviously they're losing money because if they were really doing great they probably wouldn't be looking for a training school yeah. um but they lose money because one they guess or two they develop some kind of a model but they don't have the emotional wherewithal to to stick with it and people feel fear right Fear from an evolutionary point of view is probably a good thing. 20,000 years ago, if you're walking down a trail and a saber-toothed tiger comes after you, it was, it's good to be afraid. It makes you stronger, faster, laser-focused. Here we are 20,000 years later. If you have the fear of losing money, it makes you do irrational things. It makes you sell your winners too soon. It makes you hold on to your losers for too long. And this is what I alluded to uh, when we just started speaking, that I know traders that are very successful who actually lose money on more trades and they make money on. But here's the thing. If they have a small loss, they, they get out of it and they move on and they don't let it bother them. If they have a winner, they let it run to get to their price target. See, it's easy to trade on paper or, you know, or in imaginary world or whatever on paper. <laughs> Think about this. You're, you have a model on paper that tells you, all right, you're going to go buy a thousand shares at $10. And if it gets to $15, you're going to sell it. If it gets to $9, you're going to get stopped out and take a loss. So you, you buy the stock on paper and it goes to 11 and to 12 and to 13. And you're like, wow, this is easy. Mm -hmm. It's the 14, it's the 15. Hey, I just made 50%, man. This is easy. Now think about the real world. You got 10 grand. Now it goes to 11. You made a thousand bucks. It's like, wow, that's a thousand dollars. I don't want to lose that. Well, maybe I'll get to go a little bit more. Oh, now it's at 12. That's $2,000. That's a lot of money. I could pay my bills all month with that. You know, so your people are going to feel this like this desire to sell because they're afraid of losing out on their profit. And the great traders like the Steve Cohen's, they have the emotional wherewithal that they have the discipline to like let it keep going. And then when it gets to their target, they sell it. Same thing with if it goes down on paper, it's easy. Hey, I bought it at 10, it went to nine. I'm just going to get stopped out, take my thousand dollar loss, and move on. Mm -hmm. In real life, 
you buy it at 10, it goes to nine. It's like, wow, that's a thousand dollars. And also it's not just the money. It's like, if I get stopped out, it's an admission that I'm, I'm wrong. So a big part of the reason for success or failure is emotions and psychology. Mm -hmm. And that's so important to options trading, which will kind of lead to our next segue here. When you have so much more that you have to monitor and look through, options trading is so important to have. You know when you're gonna exit and enter, uh, you know exit for half, close out the other remaining portion. Where where do you see you know options trading heading in the next five years? Because we're in the midst of this unprecedented growth. But in 2020, it was like great. Well, everything's going up. Now it's a lot different. Do you see that impacting how retail traders approach options? Yeah, because uh, I do. I think that there's going to be, frankly, a lot less interest because a lot of people are losing money now. You know, mm -hmm. it's like you said, when the, the rising tide lifts all boats, right? It was everything was easy up until November. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, we're already seeing the volumes are really drying up. I don't know about your guys' traffic, but our traffic has been drying up. Uh, a little bit. I mean, you know, nothing like tremendous, but but noticeable. But, um, you know, I think there's a lot of people that have lost a lot of money in options, in the meme stocks, in the cryptos. Uh, so I think that's why a lot of people now are coming over to get into the educational side or, or to seek an education because, mm -hmm. you know, I, I get a little, you know, I'll admit I get a little, not a, I guess, offended. Um, you know, when a year and a half ago, when all these, you know, these Reddit traders are all coming out, and it's like, oh, you know, I bought one stock and it went up and I'm a greater trader than Steve Cohen. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is easy. Well, where are all those, those meme stocks now? A lot of them are down 90, 95%. Uh, so, you know, it, it's, it pride comes before the fall, right? We always have yeah. to tell us that because, because once you think that you know what you're doing, the market has a really way to remind you that it's always going to know more than you do. So that goes back to our psychology. You have to be humble. You know, it's losing money can emotionally devastate people. Right? Well, and, and connecting that back to the contrarianism, if you see sentiment going one way, overwhelming sentiment in, in the same way that you have Dave freaking Portnoy, you know, live streaming trades and talking about, oh, I'm going to buy love. And you see all his little stoolies being like, oh, buy, buy Southwest, buy Southwest. You know, that's overwhelming sentiment when then you take the technical backdrop and say, well, I don't know. And so that's how a shrewd contrarian can weather the storm when things eventually correct itself. Well, there's a famous story and I have a modern version of it too, but I'll give you the, the famous story. That Joe Kennedy, back in the 20s, the patriarch of the Kennedy family, was on his way to work. And he, at that point in his career, would be, you know, in today's term would be a hedge fund manager, mm -hmm. manage money. So anyway, he's on his way to work and he gets the shoe shine and the shoe shine boy starts giving him stock tips. So he goes back to his office and he sells everything and the market crashes and it's the Great Depression and the rest is history. All right. Now, what happened? Is it that Joe Kennedy doesn't like shoe shine boys? <laughs> no, what he realizes is that if we have this vastly or a huge amount of bullish sentiment, right, and people like shoeshine boys that aren't typically buying stocks are buying stocks, there's no one left in the food chain behind them to push the price higher. So the market effectively runs out of buyers. And if that happens, the only way it can go is lower. Now, back in December, when the market peaked, like literally within a week or two of the market peak, I had a I had a leaky pipe 
and I had a plumber come over to fix it. And he was a young guy, he's probably about 30 years old. And he's like, Oh, are you a day trader? And I told him what I did. And he's like, Oh, I, you know, I have a guy, a friend who was an HVAC guy who quit his job to become a day trader. And they want me to do this. And I know a guy that who was a plumber with me who he went to become a day trader. Now I'm not making fun of those guys, mm -hmm. but I'm just saying this is the way the market works. When people that don't buy stocks like HVAC guys and plumbers are buying stocks, there's no one else behind them to push push the price higher. Mm -hmm. So the market runs out of buyers and the only way it can go is, is down. And then obviously the, or not obviously, but this, the opposite happens on the downside. When people are panicking and there's this overwhelming amount of bearishness, what has happened? Well, if you're bearish, you've sold your stocks. So if we have excessive bearishness, the market essentially runs out of sellers. Mm -hmm. And in that case, the only way it can go is up. So that's why we look for these extreme sentiment ratings. Yeah, very well said. I, I love that you guys are doing that. It's very much in tune with what we're doing over here. Hey, I, I mean, have you seen The Big Short? Uh, yeah. So it, that's one of my favorite scenes when Steve Carell's character is talking to the exotic dancer. She's saying, I own four houses in a boat. <laughs> and, and then they cut right away goes, yep, there's a bubble. There, there, there's a bubble. Like a hundred percent, there's a bubble. It's 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 fascinating. Well, you know, talk to me what what's new over at Bazinga and and what you know where do you see this trading school going next? Well, there we're making a well. I shouldn't say we. Well, I guess I could say we. But the developers are making a, a lot of improvements, and now that we got kind of the a lot of the bugs worked out and so forth. Because any anything you start at the beginning, there's going to be bugs. We started in in September. And I had never taught a class before, so it took me, you know, a few months to kind of get my feet to kind of really figure out what these um, students were looking for. Like, like I'll tell you one thing. Like, I had no idea this whole concept of a of community, like how these these they all like talk to each other and exchange ideas and so forth. I figured it would just be a class like me lecturing, and people would be just like taking notes or whatever. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I'm really proud of our our community because we had a conference in Las Vegas a few months ago and probably about 20 of the students came and we, you know, we had people coming in from Germany and like, I'm really proud because we have people from such different, you know, parts of, of life. Like we have, you know, like you name it. And there's someone like that in the class, right? People that are from really poor backgrounds, people that are from money, people that are highly educated, people that, are high school graduates, but have high IQs and they could easily be highly educated if their mm -hmm. circumstances were different. So I'm kind of, I'm proud of the community. As a matter of fact, tomorrow down in New York city, we're having a, having a dinner. Um, so I'm proud of that and it's growing and we're going to really start to advertise now and aggressively market it. So, you know, I think it's a, it's a good place to be. And it, it's, 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 it's different than any other schools that I've seen. And I don't want to sound self-promoting, but there's just very few people that have as much experience as I do when it comes into the trading world, mm -hmm. you, you know, where who's, who else has worked for two of the greatest people ever. And then the greatest money managers ever. And then has been the head of trading at three different money managers that all manage billions of dollars. So I have a lot of experience and a lot of these other teachers that we're seeing are people that think they knew what they were doing because they were in a bull market for five years. Mm -hmm. And we've even seen some of our trading competition literally have to pay fines to the FTC for for false advertising. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I if I'm allowed to say that or not, I, who it is? I mean, it's the FTC, so it's publicly information. Mm -hmm. But you know, Warrior Trading, 
I do not know. Well, they they were supposedly like our the Benzinga Trading School's biggest um biggest uh I guess competition. Mm-hmm. And they just had to pay all kinds of fees for misleading advertising. So it's all yeah. with the the FTC. So I mean what I'm saying is we publicly disclosed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um and I think, you know, I don't know the ins and outs of that, but I think it's probably maybe someone who was like, hey, this is easy, this is easy, this is easy, this is easy. Then all of a sudden it's like, wait a second, this isn't so easy. Oh, all of a sudden I'm losing a lot of clients and a lot of subscribers and so forth. So maybe that kind of compels them to go down the unethical path. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, it's interesting. And a lot of the students come in and they're expecting in a lot of ways, they're kind of surprised to find out that there's these no secrets. It's like, hey, pay attention to your psychology, know where the price levels are, know what the momentum is, and you could, from that knowledge, create some kind of a profitable trading system. Yep, absolutely. I love that. I'll throw in the Benz, uh, the Benzinga links in this episode's bio, so anyone that's listening can just click there, and that will take you the rest of the way. Mark Petrino, as we're wrapping up here, I do want to do some rapid-fire questions, and I think I alluded to this in, in our email chain. So are you in Stanford? Yes. Nice. Okay, so I'm from Monroe, right. so Fairfield County, big UConn fan, you said. <clears throat> so give me your all-time UConn starting five. Oh boy, that's gonna be tough. I'll go. I'll go first, and I'll, I'll let you you think about it. Okay. Kemba, point guard. Richard yeah. Hamilton, shooting guard. Yeah. Rudy Gay, small forward. Okafor, center. And see, I'm struggling with the last one. If I if, if I want to go positionally, Daniel Marshall. I, I would concur. I might want to throw Cliff Robinson in there too, though. Okay, and I also completely forgot Ray Allen too. Yeah, so and Ray Allen too. It's hard to. It's hard oh. to. I'll I'll swap Ray Allen for uh for for Rip and put Rip coming off the bench. Yeah. Uh, so no, it's it's great to talk to another Husky fan. I uh I moved down to Kentucky to play soccer at a small liberal arts school from Connecticut. So I didn't have a lot of sports connections and being down in Kentucky with the Louisville fans and the Kentucky fans, I I really kind of embraced my UConn heritage. You know, I would watch all the games growing up, obviously, go to the Jim Calhoun camps, but it it really blossomed when I moved, you know, moved away from Connecticut as that's like my sole nutmeg state representation. When I was when I was a freshman, it was Jim Calhoun's second year, and that was the year they won the NIT tournament. Mm-hmm. And then when my junior year, like no one at UConn really talked about basketball. UConn was actually a soccer school, believe it or oh, not. Yeah. That was like their one sport that was actually pretty um so anyway i went home for christmas break and i remember the guy i was working with was like oh hey your your basketball team is doing really good and they would beat i think two top 10 teams two ranked top 10 teams and then when i got back up after christmas break in my junior year it was just basketball mania mm-hmm. yeah so. it, it, it took off in the early 90s and it was it, it was fun to be a part of it's 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 been great uh, a couple other rapid fire questions are you a lobster roll? Are you Connecticut or Maine style? Lobster roll? I, yeah. To me, lobster or sea cockroaches, man. So I don't really like them. Wow. Okay. That's <laughs> that's that's a rarity for a, for a New England resident. I did work in a in college on a a on a fishing boat, ah. and the guys that were in the boat next to us were lobster men, and I just used to look at them and think, like, man, that thing just looks like a cockroach. So you you saw how the sausage is made and you, yes. you stepped away. Absolutely, very fair, very fair. <laughs> and also we uh, we talked about Whitney Farms. Uh, my dad plays there every week. Uh, what's your favorite golf course in Connecticut? In Connecticut, oh boy, that's tough. If you just say Connecticut, or, or how about Fairfield County then? 
um, Fairfield County. Well, there's a cl- country club in Greenwich, uh, the Sandwich Club. Okay. Which is it's not it's not very well known because it's it's pretty pretty uh, exclusive. But in terms of the put it this way, I have a, I have a friend. I I've kind of run out of touch with him, but I knew a guy who was a professional teacher. He was a like a plus two. All right. Mm-hmm. He taught at the the Pound Ridge Club in Pound Ridge, New York. Mm-hmm. And I took him to play at Stanwich, and he said that they were the nicest greens of any course he had ever played on in his entire career. Wow, uh, that's coming from a guy that is a professional golfer. Um, so, but I'm not a member there. I, I have a couple friends are yep. who are. So, so that's a that's, and then you know, Burning Tree in Greenwich. Like if you're driving on the Parkway, you see the Country Club there. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's um, my brother's a member there, and I so I play probably there more than anywhere else. So I'll um I fly out of Westchester sometimes, and we'll drive right by there. Coming down the Mer- it, it's the one coming down by the Merritt, I think. Yeah, if you're driving down to Westchester, it would be on the left when you get into Greenwich. Yep, yep. And, and, um, and- that's right where I live. I'm, I'm off exit 33, and then the next exit is 31. The reason why there's no exit 32 is because they were considering putting the United Nations around here back in the 40s, and they wanted to leave an exit for it. So that's why there's no exit 32. Oh wow! I'll have to quiz my dad and see if he knew that. That's that's some good trivia there. Yeah. Uh, no, that's great. Um, so I'm ready to wrap up here. Do you have any final um, final thing you want to plug? Final piece of advice for some retail traders? I'll I'll give the floor to you, Mark. Yeah, I would just want to say that um, it's probably not as complicated as you think it is. If you come into the trading school, you're going to learn about common sense and logical things and applying my experience and other students experience it's not like some magic formula where we're going to just the the class is based on how in the institutional trading world the you have your investment team and you have your traders right the investment team they're the ones who sit in their offices they go through their models the set the traders are the ones who are actually out in the markets talking to people every day seeing what's going on so every morning i would run in in a meeting for all the people. And I would talk about, oh, this is what we're seeing in the market. This is what we're seeing here. This is what we're seeing there. And then we would talk about ways that we could trade it. And a big theme of the class is this. I want to put this out there a lot is that we let the market tell us what to do. We don't guess. Like right now, we're not guessing the market's going to go down. But if Apple starts to break that 151 level, that market is probably saying, hey, I'm about to move lower. So we don't guess. We let the market tell us what to do. And by doing that, we have low risk trades, which ultimately leads to success. I love that. Let the market tell you what to do. That's that's a great way to end it. Mark Petrino, lead educator at Benzinga.com. You can check out, put the link in the bio. Uh, thanks for coming on. Go Huskies. Right, Patrick, thank you. And uh, yeah, maybe we'll chat again in the fall, talk about some fall golf. Cool. All right. Thank you, Patrick. All right. Take, take care. care. Man.